Alright, bottom of the ninth, we're back here going from good to great. What if I just did the entire thing like that, but played it entirely straight? Alright, picking where we picking up where we left off. The contrast between Jack Eckert and Cork Walgreen is striking. Whereas Jack Eckert had a genius for picking the right stores to buy, Cork Walgreen had a genius for picking the right people to hire. Alright, I'll stop there. Whereas Jack Eckert had a gift for seeing which stores should go in what locations, Cork Walgreen had a gift for seeing which people should go in what seats. Whereas Jack Eckert failed utterly at the single most important decision facing any executive, the selection of a successor, Cork Walgreen developed multiple outstanding candidates and selected a superstar successor who may prove to be even better than Cork himself. Whereas Jack Eckert had no executive team, but instead a bunch of capable helpers assembled to assist the great genius, Cork Walgreen built the best executive team in the industry. Whereas the primary guidance mechanism for Eckert Corporation's strategy lay inside Jack Eckert's head, the primary guidance mechanism for Walgreen's corporate strategy lay in the group dialogue and shared insights of the talented executive team. <sighs> Sorry. <clears throat> The genius with a thousand helpers model is particularly prevalent in the unsustained comparison companies. The most classic case comes from a man known as the Sphinx, Henry Singleton of Teledyne. Singleton grew up on a Texas ranch with the childhood dream of becoming a great businessman in the model of the rugged individualist. Armed with a PhD from MIT, he founded Teledyne. The name Teledyne derives from Greek and means force applied at a distance. An apt name as the central force holding the far-flung empire together was Henry Singleton himself. Also his name is Henry Singleton. You're not going to comment on that? That's crazy. It's like a character from a story. Through acquisition, Singleton built the company from a small enterprise to number 293 on the Fortune 500 in six years. It sounds impressive, but you used the word enterprise. You didn't even say a small company, a small enterprise. Enterprise sounds like something that's already pretty big, but... Within 10 years, he'd completed more than 100 acquisitions, eventually creating a far-flung enterprise with 130 profit centers and everything from exotic metals to insurance. Amazingly, the whole system worked, with Singleton himself acting as the glue that connected all the moving parts together. At one point, he said, I define my job as having the freedom to do what seems to me to be the best interest of the company at the time. It seems to be in the best interest of the company at the time. A 1978 Forbes feature story maintained Singleton will win no awards for humility, but who can avoid standing in awe of his impressive record? Singleton continued to run the company well into his 70s with no serious thought given to succession. After all, why worry about succession when the very point of the whole thing is to serve as a platform to leverage the talents of your remarkable genius? If there is a single weakness in this otherwise brilliant picture, the article continued, it is this. Teledyne is not so much a system as it is the reflection of one man's singular discipline. And here we have a grass graph. We have the $1 invested, it goes up to 10 and then it goes after he dies... Uh, it goes down again to three. What a weakness it turned out to be. Once Singleton stepped away from day-to-day -day management in the mid-80s, the far-flung empire began to crumble. I mean, I we don't really need to talk about it anymore. Like, yes, if someone is just most interested in their own personal gain, whether it's money or prestige, they are going to value that above the long-term success of their company that's it that's all that's all just write that really big and that's that's it from the end of 86 until its merger with allegheny in 95 teledyne's cumulative stock returns imploded falling 66 percent blah 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 next section it's who you pay not how you pay them uh oh we expected to find that changes in incentive systems, especially executive incentives, would be highly correlated with making the leap from good to great. 
With all the attention paid to executive compensation, the shift to stock options, and the huge packages that have become commonplace, surely, we thought, the amount and structure of compensation must play a key role in doing uh, in going from good to great. How else do you get people to do the right things that create great results? We were dead wrong in our expectations. We have a block here. We found no systematic pattern linking executive compensation to the process of going from good to great. The evidence simply does not support the idea that the specific structure of executive compensation acts as a key lever in taking a company from good to great. We spent weeks inputting compensation data from proxy statements and performed 112 separate analyses looking for patterns and correlations. We examined everything we could quantify for the top five officers. Cash versus stock, long-term versus short-term incentives, salary versus bonus, and so forth. Some companies used stock extensively. Others didn't. Some had high sal. Yes, you just said the things. Now you're just saying they had differences in them. Most importantly, when we analyzed executive compensation patterns relative to comparison companies, yeah, we get it. We get it's relative to something. We found no systematic differences on the use of stock or not. High salaries or not, bonus incentives or not. Yeah, you already told us. You told us that you found that. The only difference uh, we found was that the good to great company's executives received slightly less total cash compensation 10 years after the transition than their counterparts at the still mediocre comparison companies. In other words, their long-term compensation that they set up valued the company more than what they would get personally. So it's totally in line with everything we've talked about. Not that executive compensation is irrelevant. You have to be basically rational and reasonable. I doubt that Coleman Mockler, David Maxwell, or Darwin Smith would have worked for free. And the good to great... You couldn't throw in a couple other names in there? That's only three people. I mean, how are you going to get your point across? I need more executive names that I'm not familiar with. And the good to great companies did spend time thinking about the issue. Once you've structured something that makes basic sense, executive compensation falls away as a distinguishing variable in moving an organization from good to great. Why might that be? It is simply a manifestation of the first two principle. It's not how you compensate your executives, it's which executives you have to compensate in the first place. If you have the right executives on the bus, they will do everything within their power to build a great company, not because of what they will get for it, but because they simply cannot imagine settling for anything less. (sighs) Their moral code requires building excellence for its own sake, and you're no more likely to change that with a compensation package. Yeah, they already have the job, though. Is this looking at, it should be looking specifically at attracting, it should be looking specifically at attracting uh, like the new management people. We're only talking about executive compensation. Of course that's not going to matter as much. They're already the top people. Of course they're going to work hard, whether it's for the company or themselves or whatever, like that's fucking stupid. Like, I know people love to say if you pay someone more, they work harder, and it's true in ex- to an extent. But if someone's already a CEO, it's not like cutting their taxes by 1% is going to make them work that much harder because there's more incentive. They're already a fucking CEO. Like, th- it's not just a straight-line correlation. Here's his aside. Yes, compensation incentives are important, but for very different reasons in good to great companies. The purpose of a compensation system should not be to get the right behaviors from the wrong people, but to get the right people on the bus in the first place and to keep them there. Right, that's that's what I was saying. That's exactly what I was saying. You were not able to look at... But then that's not what he was saying the whole time before. Like, he wasn't talking about attracting people with it at all. Then at the end, he just sums it up by saying the one thing that actually makes sense. But we just wasted all that time before. We were not able to look at rig- as rigorously at non-executive compensation. Oh, well, that's obviously what matters. Such data is not available in as systematic a format as proxy statements for top officers. Nonetheless, evidence from source documents and articles suggests that the same idea applies at all levels of an organization. Well, I mean, at least you're honest that you have 
little to support that. But here we go. Convince me. Even though your little box thing said the opposite. So a particularly vivid example is Nucor. Nucor built its entire system on the idea that you can teach farmers how to make steel, but you can't teach a farmer work ethic or people who don't have it in the first place. So instead of setting up steel mills in traditional steel towns like Pittsburgh and Gary, it located its plants in places like Crawfordville, Indiana, Norfolk, Nebraska, and Plymouth, Utah. Places full of real farmers who go to bed early, rise at dawn, and get right to work without fanfare. Gotta milk the cows and gonna plow the north 40 before noon. I guess that's a phrase. Translated easily into gotta roll some sheet steel and gonna cast 40 tons before lunch. Nucor ejected people who did not share this work ethic, generating as high as 50% turnover in the first year of a plant, followed by very low turnover as the right people settled in for the wrong haul. For the long haul. Did I say the wrong haul? That was a Freudian slip. To attract and keep the best workers, Nucor paid its steel workers more than any other steel company in the world. But it built its pay system around a high-pressure team bonus mechanism with over 50% of a worker's compensation tied directly to the productivity of his work team of 20 to 40 people. Nucor team members would usually show up for work 30 minutes early to arrange their tools and prepare to blast off the starting line the instant the shift gun fired. We have the hardest working steel workers in the world, said one Nucor exec. We hire five, work them like 10, and pay them like eight. Man, that's a, that sounds fair. That's, I mean, obviously it's not directly fair, but I think that's probably preferable to most uh, systems. The Nucor system did not aim to turn lazy people into hard workers, but to create an environment where hardworking people would thrive and lazy workers would either jump or get thrown off the bus. In one extreme case, workers chased a lazy teammate right out of the plant with an angle iron. Oh, good. So definitely they're doing something right. Nucor rejected the old adage that people are your most important asset. In a good to great transformation, people are not your most important asset. The right people are. Again, I've already addressed how stupid that is. I'm really disappointed. That was a little box, by the way. That was the first time I didn't mention that that was one of those like different colored boxes, like a history book. Um, but yeah, I'm not angry. I'm just honestly disappointed that you did that. <sighs> Newcore illustrates a key point. In determining the right people, the good degree... Like, what do you... <clears throat> What do you think that phrase means otherwise? The only other thing it could mean is that you just have to have people. But if that's the case, you're still not refuting that because you still do need people. If you think it's just something saying you need to have people, well, that's that's dumb, but it's still true. So what the fuck are you rejecting? Nucor illustrates a key point. In determining the right people, the good to great companies placed greater weight on character attributes than on specific educational background, practical skills, specialized knowledge, or work experience. Not that specific knowledge or skills are unimportant, but they viewed these traits as more teachable or at least learnable, whereas they believed dimensions like character, work ethic, basic intelligence, dedication to fulfilling commitments, and values are more ingrained. As Dave Nassif of Pitney Bowes put it, Honestly, I fucking like this this thing that they've set up it sounds fucking it sounds very smart it might have it might not be perfect but it sounds a hell of a lot better than most things uh so as you put it i used to be in the marines and the marines got a lot of credit for building people's values uh mostly just from the marines but but that's not the way it really works the marine corps recruits people who share the corps values then provides them with the training required to accomplish the organization's mission oh yeah they're definitely turning a lot of people away we look at you <laughs> fucking moron we look at it the same way at pitney bows we have more people who want to do the right thing than most companies we don't just look at experience we want to know who are they why are they we find out who they are by asking them why they made decisions in their life. The answers to these questions give us insight into their core values. That really didn't say anything. That was just like a guy talking about why he's proud that he used to be a Marine. It didn't add anything to the actual thing we're talking about. One good to great executive said that his best hiring decisions often came from people with no industry or business experience. In one case, he hired a manager who had been captured twice during the Second World War and escaped both times. I thought that anyone who could do that shouldn't have trouble with business. This is fucking cool. This is the kind of company I need to apply for.
Are you smart? You think you can do it? Okay, let's give it a shot. We'll teach you. That's fucking cool. Fuck everything out. God. How do I, I don't want to work for a steel mill, though. Why can't it be like a cool company? Rigorous, not ruthless. The good to great companies probably sound like tough places to work, and they are. If you don't have what it takes, you probably won't last long. But they're not ruthless cultures, they're rigorous cultures, and the distinction is crucial. Let me elaborate. To be ruthless means hacking and cutting, especially in difficult times, or wantonly firing people without any thoughtful consideration. To be rigorous means consistently applying exacting standards at all times and at all levels, especially in upper management. To be rigorous, not ruthless, means that the best people need not worry about their positions and can concentrate fully on their work. In 86, Wells Fargo acquired Crocker Bank and planned to shed gobs of excess cost in the consolidation. There's nothing unusual about that. Every bank merger in the era of deregulation aimed to cut costs out of a bloated and protected industry. However, what was unusual, unusual about the Wells-Crocker consolidation is the way Wells Fargo integrated management, or, to be more accurate, the way it didn't even try to integrate most Crocker management into the Wells culture. The Wells Fargo team concluded right up front that the vast majority of Crocker managers would be the wrong people on the bus. Okay, so they just got rid of they just got rid of the new people. That's I mean it's it's not more fair or less fair. It's just a different way of doing it. You're just like I already like who we have. We're going to consolidate by firing all the new people. Crocker had long been steeped in the traditions and perks of old-style banking culture, complete with the marbled executive dining room on its own chef and f with its own chef and 500,000 worth of china. Quite a contrast to the Spartan culture at Wells Fargo, where management's rate what? Where management ate food prepared by a college dormitory servers. Wells Fargo made it clear to the Crocker managers, "Look, this is not a merger of equals." <laughs> <laughs> it's an acquisition we bought your branches and your customers we didn't acquire you okay i mean that's a fair business decision but how much are we really going to talk about how that is like something to emulate like that's fair but i don't think anyone's like Ugh. i don't think anyone's wringing their their hands like how do i best integrate these companies and if they're not just firing the new people, it's because of something other than their ethical feelings about it. Like, obviously, that is a thing you can do. Wells Fargo terminated most of the Crocker management team. 1,600 Crocker managers gone on day one, including nearly all the top executives. A critic might say... That's just the Wells people protecting their own. But consider the following fact. Wells Fargo also sent some of its own managers packing in cases where the Crocker managers were judged as better qualified. Oh, how novel, I guess. When it came to management, the Wells Fargo standards were ferocious and consistent. Like a professional sports team, only the best made the annual cut, regardless of position or tenure. Summed up one... Summed up... Summed up one Wells Fargo executive... That's not a that's not grammatically correct. The only way to deliver to the people who are achieving is to not burden them with the people who are not achieving. On the surface, this looks ruthless, but the evidence suggests that the average Crocker manager was just not the same caliber as the average Wells manager and would have failed in the Wells Fargo culture. If you weren't going to make it on the bus, oh, fuck. You have to say the same thing with the bus analogy. Uh, we all agreed this was an acquisition, not a merger. There's no sense beating around the bush. <gasps> Not being straightforward with people, I decided it'd be best to simply do it for, you know, on day one. Okay, all right, I'm, all right, I'm just going to skip, read through it, but skip it to make sure. I'll read it to make sure it doesn't say anything, but to let people languish in uncertainty for months or years, stealing precious time in their lives that they could, oh, don't just fucking, like, go into why it's a better decision for the people. Like, come on, we're talking about the business here. It's fine. You don't need to justify it with other bullshit. Some, like someone who's like, you know, the reason I didn't give that homeless person money, honey, is because he would just buy booze with it. I'm actually helping him. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, just talk about the business. That's what we're thinking about. It's fine. It's not that big a deal. 
Not that the Cracker acquisition is easy to swallow. It's never pleasant to see thousands of people lose their jobs, but the era of bank deregulation saw hundreds of thousands of lost jobs. Given that, it's interesting to note two points. First, Wells Fargo did fewer big layoffs than its comparison company, Bank of America. Second, upper management, including some senior Wells Fargo upper management, suffered more on a percentage basis than lower-level workers in the consolidation. Rigor in a good-to-great company applies first at the top. (laughs) Rigor. (laughs) Rigor, like rigor mortis. That's what I was laughing about. Uh, Focused on those who hold a largest burden of responsibility. To be rigorous in people decisions means first becoming rigorous about top management people decisions. Indeed, I fear that people might use first who rigor as an excuse for mindlessly chopping out people to improve performance. It's hard to do, but we've got to be rigorous, I can hear them say, and I cringe. For not only will a lot of hardworking good people get hurt in the process, but the evidence suggests that such tactics are contrary to producing sustained great results. The good to great companies rarely used headcount lopping as a tactic and almost never used it as a primary strategy. Even in the Wells Fargo case, the company used layoffs half as much as Bank of America. Okay. I'm just going to say now because I'm going to forget if it doesn't go into like what they did to keep more of them, that's fucking retarded because that's all we talked about was how they smartly got rid of a bunch of people. That was like 15 minutes of our lives that we'll never get back. Uh, here's a box. Six of the 11 good to great companies recorded zero layoffs for from 10 years before the breakthrough date all the way through 98, and four others reported only one or two layoffs. <clears throat> in contrast, we found layoffs used five times more frequently in the comparison companies than in the good to great companies. Some of the comparison companies had an almost chronic addiction to layoffs and restructurings. I mean, that should kind of just come hand in hand with finding the right people, right? That's the whole idea, is you find the right people and then you move forward. It would be a mistake, a tragic mistake indeed, to think that the way you ignite a transition from good to great is by wantonly swinging the axe on vast numbers of hardworking people. You already said that. You even used wantonly to describe it. Unless restructuring and mindless hacking were never part of the good to great model. How to be rigorous. We've extracted three practical disciplines from the research for being rigorous rather than ruthless. All right, I'm kind of curious. Well, I mean, I'm going to be disappointed, but it sounds like he's... I like the approach they're taking now. Practical discipline one. When in doubt, don't hire. Keep looking. One of the immutable laws of management physics is Packard's Law so-called because we first learned it in a previous research project from David Packard, co-founder of the Hewlett-Packard Company. It goes like this. No company can grow revenues consistently faster than its ability to get enough of the right people to implement that growth and still become a great company. If your growth rate in revenues consistently outpaces your growth rate in people, you simply will not, indeed cannot, become a great company box to side. Those who build great companies understand the ultimate throttle on growth for any great company is not markets or technology or competition or products. It is one thing above all others, the ability to get and keep enough of the right people. The management team at Circuit City instinctively understood Packard's law. Driving around Santa Barbara the day after Christmas a few years ago, I noticed something different about the Circuit City store. Other stores had signs and banners reaching out to customers. Always the best prices, or great after-holiday deals, or best after-Christmas selection, and so forth. But not Circuit City. It had a banner that read, always looking for great people. Yeah, but it's kind of bullshit, because it's just a fucking retail job. The sign reminded me of our interview with Walter Bruckert, vice president during the good to great years. When asked to name the name, when asked to name the top five factors that led to the transition from mediocrity to excellence, Bruckert said one would be people, two would be people, three would be people, four would be people, and five would be people. I can see why you like this guy. (laughs) A huge part of our transition can be attributed to our discipline and picking the right people. (laughs) Okay, I didn't realize he wasn't done. Brooker then recalled a conversation with CEO Alan Wurzel during a growth spurt at Circuit City. Alan, I'm really wearing down trying to find the right 
person to fill this position or that position. At what point do I compromise? Without hesitation, Alan said, you don't compromise. We find another way to get through until we find the right people. One of the key contrasts, I mean, that seems smart. I, I like that idea. One of the key contrasts between Alan Wurzel at Circuit City and Sidney Cooper at Silo is that Wurzel spent the bulk of his time in the early years focused on getting the right people on the bus. Whereas, we're going to go to the next page, but I'm just going to tell you right now, it's going to say, whereas Sidney Cooper spent the right time, you know, whatever the metaphor, going to the right place. Whereas Cooper spent 80% of his time focusing on the right stores to buy. Okay, well, that's not, okay, I mean, that is what I said, but he just decided, that's not fair. He just decided to abandon the metaphor halfway through the sentence. What the fuck? He just went totally literal all of a sudden, whereas Cooper spent 80% of his time focusing on the right stores to buy. That's What about the bus? Wurzel's first goal was to build the best, most professional management team in the industry. Cooper's first goal, let me guess, was to uh, buy more stores? Cooper's first goal was simply to grow as fast as possible. Circuit City put tremendous emphasis on getting the right people all up and... All up and down the line, from delivery drivers to vice presidents, Silo developed a reputation for not being able to do the basics, like making home deliveries without damaging the products. Okay, so I can extract some meaning from that as it matters all the way down, like even the lower paid people. So maybe Circuit City really was looking for the right people in those positions. Now, should the right people take that job are they going to be fairly compensated are they going to get promoted if they do a good job i don't know maybe it's not the best decision for them but at least circuit city was actually looking for them so for that they're doing a good job i don't know if that was clear i was referencing that after christmas sign thing he saw uh, according to Circuit City's Dan Rexinger, we made the best home delivery drivers in the industry. We told them, you are the last contact the customer has with Circuit City. We're going to supply you with uniforms. Nice. We require that you shave. Oh, so you're just... Uh, that you don't have BO. You're going to be professional people. Oh, since when is shaving part of that? Is it fucking Walt Disney? The change in the way we handled customers when making a delivery was absolutely incredible. <laughs> Once we got rid of the mustaches, it was gangbusters. We would get thank you notes back from how courteous the drivers were. Five years into Wurzel's tenure, Circuit City and Silo had essentially the same business strategy, the same answers to the what questions, yet Circuit City took off like a rocket, beating the general stock market 18.5 to 1 in the 15 years after its transition, while Silo bumped along until it was finally acquired by a foreign company. Same strategy, different people, different results. Uh, worth noting, you used data to describe Circuit Cities, whereas Silo, um, you just said they bumped along until it was finally acquired by a foreign company. So you, you are clearly not pointing out how much it actually grew, which leads me to believe, well, 18.5 to 1 uh, is obviously extremely good, and they are making very good decisions. It also is bolstered by the fact that that industry had a boom, and now you're avoiding it so obviously i can almost guarantee that silo still was doing well during that time being acquired by a i mean and the fact that you mentioned it's a foreign company like you're just appealing to people's fucking xenophobia like uh, being acquired doesn't necessarily mean you're in fact you're probably not going to be a well, I don't know being acquired is not necessarily a sign that the company is doing poorly right i mean it, and certainly the fact that it's foreign, while you may not like foreign people, does not make it, is not an indication that the company is doing worse than if it was acquired by a domestic company. It's fucking stupid. I can see the little machinations in your brain as you write your stupid fucking shit. Wow, I got really upset about that. It's not that big a deal. Uh, same strategy, different people, different results. Different people. They look different. Uh, practical discipline, too. When you know you need to make a people change, act. When you know you need to make a people change, act. I'm still not used to that phrase, people change. I mean, it's fine. It's not wrong or anything. It just feels awkward. I'm just talking personally. 
The moment you feel the need to tightly manage someone, you've made a hiring mistake. The best people don't need to be managed. All right. I really want to just skip the next two pages, but we're moving on. Guided, taught, guided, taught, led, yes, but not tightly managed. We've all experienced or observed the following scenario. We have a wrong person on the bus, and we know it. <laughs> uh, you're getting into murky territory. Yet we wait, we delay, we try alternatives, we give a third and a fourth chance, we hope that the situation will improve, we invest time in trying to properly manage the person, we build little systems to compensate for his shortcomings, and so forth. I don't really see that happening. I think most companies uh, are not that invested in... Like, he's making it sound like it's a matter of picking the right people versus trying really hard to motivate those people or to get them to be good, but it's usually... Neither of those, I mean, if you're doing something wrong, you're either picking the right people and then like part of that, it usually goes hand in hand with like supplying the resources for them to grow um, or you're just not, I mean, the point is people aren't spending too much time and money in an abundance of tools to help their management team grow. Uh, if anything, they just waste money because they send them on like retreats and things like that. But I really don't think that's the issue. But the situation doesn't improve. When we go home, we find our energy diverted by thinking or talking to our spouses about that person. Worse, all the time and energy we spend on that one person siphons energy away from developing and working with all the right people. We continue to stumble along until that person leaves on his own. Uh, to our great sense of relief, or we finally act, also to our great sense of relief. Meanwhile, our best people wonder, what took you so long? Letting the wrong people hang around is unfair to all the right people, as they inevitably find themselves compensating for the inadequacy of the, of the wrong people. Worse, it can drive away the best people. Strong performers are intrinsically motivated by performance, and when they see their efforts impeded by carrying extra weight, they eventually become frustrated. Waiting too long before acting is equally unfair to the people who need to get off the bus. For every minute, here's the uh, uh, here's the uh, homeless person aphorism. For every minute you allow a person to continue holding a seat when you know that person will not make it in the end, you're stealing a portion of his life. Oh God! Wow, you're really getting on a high horse. You're you're not wasting his time. You're stealing a portion of his life. Um, all of these are male pronouns, by the way, but that's. I don't have time to point that out every time, Just, but it, that's a thing for sure that I'm picking up on. Time that he could find, uh, time that he could spend finding a better place where he could flourish. That's, that's such a fucking euphemism. Like, why do you need to pretend that there's some like lazy company out there where he's going to do great? Like, the person's just not good. You don't need to pretend that it's good for them to get rid of them. Just be a fucking man, <laughs> to use a uh, very sexist term, and just fucking say they're not good for the business. Like, don't backpedal and try to pretend that you're doing something great. What you're doing is not that bad. Even someone like me, a fucking very liberal, sensitive person, understands that you fire someone for being shitty. Like, I get it. Indeed, if we're honest with ourselves, the reason we wait too long often has less to do with concern for that person and more to do with our own convenience. Yeah, well, it actually has mostly to do with your own laziness or inadequacies in management, but in the ability to pick those people out. That's what it has to do with. He's doing an okay job, but it would be a huge hassle to replace him, so we avoid the issue. Or we find the whole process of dealing with the issue to be stressful and distasteful. Or people say really racist shit, like, well, I'd fire him except he's black and I'm afraid I'm going to get sued, which I've definitely heard people say things like that. So to save ourselves stress and discomfort, we wait and wait and wait. Meanwhile, all the best people are still wondering, when are they going to do something about this? How long is this going to go on? Using data from Moody's company information reports, we were able to examine the pattern of turnover in the top management levels. We found no difference in the amount of churn turnover within a period of time between the good to great and the comparison companies, but we did find a difference in the pattern of churn. Box decide. The good to great companies showed the following bipolar pattern at the top management level. People either stayed on the bus for a long time or got off the bus in a hurry. In other words, the good to great companies did not churn more, they churned better. 
All right, so they got rid of him at the beginning. They didn't waste time. The good to great leaders did not pursue an expedient try a lot of people and keep who works model of management. Um, which brings to mind our, our government. Um, that's definitely the, I mean, literally that's explicitly what, what they've talked about with, um, and it's one of the few things that I thought, like, kind of, I could see where you're coming from when the president said it, uh, like he's running it like a business, but that's interesting here that we're specifically talking about how that doesn't work. Instead, they adopted the following approach. Let's take the time to make rigorous A-plus selections right up front. If we get it right, we'll do everything we can do to try to keep them on board for a long time. If we make a mistake, then we'll confront that fact so we can get on with our work and we can get on with our lives. The good to great leaders, however, would not rush to judgment. Often, they invested substantial effort in determining whether they had someone in the wrong seat before concluding that they had the wrong person on the bus entirely. When Coleman Mockler became CEO of Gillette, he didn't go on a rampage, wantonly throwing people out the window of a moving bus. Instead, he spent fully 55% of his time during his first two years in office jiggering around with the management team. That sounded vaguely racist. Changing or moving 38 of the top 50 people. Said Mockler, every minute devoted to putting the proper person on the proper slot is worth the weeks of time later. Uh, every minute doing that is worth weeks of time later. Similarly, Alan Wurzel of Circuit City sent us a letter after reading an early draft of this chapter wherein he commented, Your point about getting the right people on the bus, as compared to other companies, is dead on. There is one corollary that is also important. I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about who sits where on the bus. I called it putting square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes. Instead of firing honest and able people who are not performing well, it is important to try to move them once or even two or three times to other positions where they might blossom. Bucks decide. It might take time to know for certain if someone is simply in the wrong seat or whether he needs to get off the bus altogether. Nonetheless, when the good to great leaders knew they had to make a change, they would act. Alright, I need a fucking break from this. Well, <clears throat> picking up where we left off... But how do you know when you know? Two questions can help. First, if it were a hiring decision rather than a should this person get off the bus decision, would you hire the person again? Second, if the person came to tell you that he or she is leaving to pursue an exciting new opportunity, would you feel terribly disappointed or secretly relieved? Practical Discipline 3. Put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. That sounds like actually um, a very interesting practical thing. Probably the extensive explanation that comes afterwards will not be necessary, but as a headline, I think it's great. In the early 1960s, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris derived the vast majority of their revenues from the domestic arena. R.J. Reynolds' approach to international business was, if somebody out there in the world wants a camel, let them call us. Jill Coleman at Philip Morris had a different view. He identified international markets as the single best opportunity for long-term growth, despite the fact that the company derived less than 1% of its revenues from overseas. <clears throat> Coleman puzzled over the best strategy for developing international operations and eventually came up with a brilliant answer. It was not a what answer, but a who. He pulled his number one executive, George Weissman, off the primary domestic business and put him in charge of international. At the time, international amounted to almost nothing. A tiny export department, a struggling investment in Venezuela, another in Australia, and a tiny operation in Canada. When Joe put George in, front of in, in charge of international, a lot of people wondered what George had done wrong, quipped one of Weissman's colleagues. I didn't know whether I was being thrown sideways downstairs or out the window, said Weissman. Here I was running 99% of the company, and the next day I'd be running 1% or less. Yet, as Forbes magazine observed 20 years later, Coleman's decision to move Weissman to the smallest part of the business was a stroke of genius. Urbane and sophisticated, Weissman was the perfect person to develop markets like Europe, and he built International into the largest and fastest growing part of the company. In fact, under Weissman's stewardship, Marlboro became the best-selling cigarette in the world three years before it became number one in the United States. It would be years before the U.S. would come anywhere close to the number of lung cancer deaths as Europe. 
Now, RJR versus Philip Morris case illustrates a common pattern. The good to great companies made a habit of putting their best people on their best opportunities, not their biggest problems. The comparison companies had a penchant for doing just the opposite, failing to grasp the fact that managing your problems can only make you good, whereas building your opportunities is the only way to become great. Um, again, I think that's a worthwhile thing to state. There's an important corollary to this discipline. When you decide to sell off your problems, don't sell off your best people. This is one of those little secrets of change. If you create a place where the best people always have a seat on the bus, they're more likely to support changes in direction. For instance, when Kimberly Clark sold the mills, Darwin Smith made it clear. The company might be getting rid of the paper business, but it would keep its best people. Many of our people had come up through the paper business. Then, all of a sudden, the crown jewels are being sold off and they're asking, what is my future? Explained Dick Ochter. And Owen would say, we need all the talented managers we can get. We keep them. Despite the fact that they had little or no consumer experience, Smith moved all the best paper people to the consumer business. We interviewed Dick Appert, a senior executive who spent the majority of his career in the papermaking division at Kimberly Clark. The same division sold off to create funds for the company's big move into consumer products. He talked with pride and excitement about the transformation of Kimberly Clark, how it had the guts to sell the paper mills, how it had the foresight to exit the paper business and throw the proceeds into the consumer business, and how it had taken on Procter & Gamble. I never had any argument with our decision to dissolve the division of the company, he said. We did get rid of the paper mills at that time, and I was in absolute agreement with that. Stop and think about that for a moment. The right people want to be part of building something great, and Dick Appert saw that Kimberly Clark would become great by selling the part of the company where he had spent most of his working life. The Philip Morris and Kimberly Clark cases illustrate a final point about the right people. We noticed a level 5 atmosphere at the top executive level of every good to great company, especially during the key transition years. What, are you just like throwing, like, you could throw, that's, you could put that in at any paragraph at any time. And you have, not that every executive on the team became a fully evolved level 5 leader to the same degree as Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler. I want to see you just use one example one time. At, every time there's an example there's two to six examples that follow it. Oh, okay. I'll be fair. One to five. Two to six total. But each core member of the team transformed personal ambition into ambition and for into ambition for the company. This suggests that the team members had level five potential, or at least they were capable of operating in a manner consistent with the level five leadership style. You might be wondering... What's the difference between a level 5 executive team member and just being a good soldier? A level 5 executive team member does not blindly acquiesce to authority and is a strong leader in her own right. Oh, good for you. You said her. So driven and talented that she builds her arena into one of the very best in the world. Yet each team member must also have the ability to meld that strength into doing whatever it takes to make the company great. We have a box here. Indeed, one of the crucial elements in taking a company from good to great is somewhat paradoxical. You need executives, on the one hand, who argue and debate, sometimes violently, in pursuit of the best answers. Yet, on the other hand, who unify fully behind a decision, regardless of parochial interests. Paro parochial? I don't know that word. I'm relating to a church parish having a limited or narrow outlook or scope. Parochial. Parochial. An article on Philip Morris said of the Coleman area, era, these guys never agreed on anything, and they would argue about everything, and they would kill each other and involve everyone, high and low, talented people. What? I feel like that sentence just stepped off a cliff in the middle of it. Like, where, where did the... Never, these guys never agreed on anything. They would argue about everything, and they would kill each other and involve everyone, high and low, talented people. Okay, whatever. But when they had to make a decision, the decision would emerge. This was Philip Morris. No matter how much they argued, said a Philip Morris executive, they were always in search of the best answer. In the end, everybody stood behind the decision. All of the debates were for the good of the company, not your own interests or the interests of the public health. But anyway, first who, 
great companies, and a great life. Whenever I teach at the Good to Great Findings, someone almost always raises the issue of the personal cost in making a transition from good to great. In other words, is it possible to build a great company and also build a great life? Yes. The secret to doing so lies right in this chapter. Ooh, boy, I can't wait. I spent a few short days with the senior Gillette executive. Oh, so what, it was in winter? <laughs> there we go. Uh, uh, Gillette executive and his wife at an executive conference in Hong Kong. Oh, I get it. It was in Asia, so that's why it was short. During the course of our conversations, I asked them if they thought Coleman Mockler, the CEO most responsible for Gillette's transition from good to great, had a great life. Coleman's life revolved around three great loves, they told me. His family, Harvard, and Gillette. Even during the darkest and most intense times of the takeover crisis of the 80s, and despite the increasingly global nature of Gillette's business, Mockler maintained remarkable balance in his life. He did not significantly reduce the amount of time he spent with his family, rarely working evenings or weekends. He maintained his disciplined worship practices. He continued his active work on the governing board of Harvard College. I really do think there's something cool going on at Harvard. Like, it's not just that they let people in with really strict academic standards. Like, whatever the teaching staff are doing, people really like it. And I know that they have, like, um, they get way more endowments than anyone else. And it's not just because the people are successful. It's because, like, people really feel indebted to them and really like the college. Anyway, um... When I asked Mockler, when I asked how Mockler accomplished all of this, the executive said, oh, it wasn't, it really wasn't that hard for him. He was so good at assembling the right people around him and putting the right people in the right slots that he just didn't need to be there all the hours of the day and night. That was Coleman's whole secret to success and balance. That's not really a secret. You just, that just means you work quickly or you're good at it. So, so far, we're just saying, can you have all these things... Yes, as long as you can do things a lot faster and better than people. The executive went on to explain that he was just as likely to meet Mockler in the hardware stores at the office. He really enjoyed puttering. <laughs> he really enjoyed puttering around the house. That seems like a really negative way to put whatever it was that he was doing. Fixing things up. He always seemed to find time to relax that way. Then the executive's wife added, When Coleman died and we all went to the funeral, I looked around and realized how much love was in the room. This was a man who spent nearly all his waking hours with people who loved him, who loved what they were doing, and who loved one another. At work, at home, in his charitable work, wherever. And the statement rang a bell for me, as there was something about the good to great executive teams that I couldn't quite describe, but that clearly set them apart. In wrapping up our interview with George Weissman of Philip Morris, I commented, When you talk about your time at the company, it's as if you're describing a love affair. He chuckled and said, Yes, other than my marriage, it was the passionate love affair of my life. I don't think many people would understand what I'm talking about. But I suspect my colleagues would. Yeah, probably because you fucked everyone over. Um, Weissman and many of his executive colleagues kept offices at Philip Morris, coming in on a regular basis long after retirement. A corridor at the Philip Morris World Headquarters is called the Hall of the Wizards of Was. The Hall of the Wizards of Was. It's the corridor where Weissman, Coleman, Maxwell, and others continue to come into the office, in large part because they simply enjoy spending time together. Similarly, Dick Appert of Kimberly-Clark said in his interview, I never had anyone in Kimberly-Clark in all my 41 years say anything unkind to me. I thank God the day I was hired because I've been associated with wonderful people. Good, good people who respected and admired one another. That sounds really awesome. Like, all cynicism aside, that sounds really cool. But unless you're really high up in the organization already, like, what are you going to do to foster that? Members of the good to great teams tended to become and remain friends for life. In many cases, they're still in close contact with each other, years or decades after working together. That's implied when you say friends for life. All you're adding there is, some of them lived more than a few years. 
It was striking to hear them talk about the transition era, for no matter how dark the days or how big the tasks, these people had fun. They enjoyed each other's company and actually looked forward to meetings. Well, everyone was drinking then, so definitely made a difference. A number of the executives characterized their years on the good to great teams as the high point of their lives. Their experience went beyond just mutual respect, which they certainly had, to lasting comradeship. Comradeship. <laughs> comradeship. Adherence to the idea of first two might be the closest link between a great company and a great life. For no matter what we achieve, if we don't spend the vast majority of our time with people we love and respect, we cannot possibly have a great life. But if we spend the vast majority of our time with people we love and respect, people, real, people we really enjoy being on the bus with and who will never disappoint us, then we will almost certainly have a great life, no matter where the bus goes. The people we interviewed from the good to great companies clearly loved what they did, largely because they loved who they did it with. <laughs> he said, did it. Um, <clears throat> chapter summary. First two, then what? Key points. The good to great leaders began the transformation by first getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus, then figured out where to drive it. The key point of this chapter is not just the idea of getting the right people on the team. The key point is that who questions come before what questions. Before vision, before strategy, before organizational structure, before tactics. First who, then what, as a rigorous discipline, consistently applied. The comparison companies frequently followed the genius with a thousand helpers model. A genius leader who sets a vision then enlists a crew of highly capable helpers to make the vision happen. This model fails when the genius departs. The good to great leaders were rigorous, not ruthless, in people decisions. They did not rely on layoffs and restructuring as a primary strategy for improving performance. The comparison companies used layoffs to a much greater extent. We uncovered three practical disciplines for being rigorous in people decisions. One, when in doubt, don't hire. Keep looking. Corollary, a company should limit its growth based on its ability to attract enough of the right people. Two, when you know you need to make a people change, act. Corollary, first be sure you don't simply have someone in the wrong seat. Three, put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. Corollary, if you sell off your problems, don't sell off your best people. Good to great management teams consist of people who debate vigorously in search of the best answers, yet who unify behind decisions, regardless of parochial interests. Unexpected, find unexpected Findings We found no systematic pattern linking executive compensation to the shift from good to great. Again, we're talking about executive compensation. The purpose of compensation is not to motivate the right behaviors from the wrong people, but to get and keep the right people in the first place. Again, we're talking about the executives, people who are very well paid to begin with. There's a limit to how much you can motivate someone with money. The old adage, people are your most important asset, is wrong. Oh god, are you going to bring that up again? People are not your most important asset. The right people are. Um, it was dumb the first time, and it gets dumber every time you repeat it. I'm still mad about that one. I'm in a good mood, but that one's pretty fucking dumb. Uh, last one. Whether someone is the right person has more to do with character traits and innate capabilities than with specific knowledge, background, or skills. That's cool. That one makes me kind of depressed, though, because I just feel like, okay, well, someone fucking give me a cool job, because, uh, because I could do it. Anywho, 